0: The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles and uh, open up to 1 Peter chapter 4,
1: uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we're going to continue our study of 1 Peter. Uh, as a church, we've been working our way through the, the book of 1 Peter, which is uh, both a timely word and a timeless word about Christian suffering. And I, I call this a, a timeless word uh, because the advice that Peter gives is good for all time. Uh, this word will never be outdated or obsolete. Uh, the Word of God doesn't need an upgrade. It doesn't need to be refreshed or updated, you know, like your, your phones, you know, you have to, to plug them in overnight so you can get the update. Uh, the, the Word of God doesn't need that. We don't need to, to charge it up and uh, hope that more information gets downloaded to our Bibles. We have everything that we need for life and godliness in the Scriptures. This is a forever word. In First uh, Peter chapter 1 and verse 25, it says, "...but the word of the Lord endures forever." And this is the word which was preached to you. But not only is this a timeless word, it's also a very timely word. Timely word. Because it speaks about issues of life that we're dealing with today. It's not like we're looking at this text and saying, you know, I'm glad that the text still works, but, you know, how in the world am I going to use it? You know, I don't know when I'll ever have a need for a word on Christian suffering. You know, when when will I ever need a word about that? And this is where... Some of you find yourself even today. You find yourself living in First Peter. I've spoken with some of you about the, the relevance of, of this word for what you've been experiencing on your jobs and your families. You're experiencing the same kinds of pressures that the churches of Asia Minor felt. And if you haven't felt it yet, don't worry, because if you're a Christian, your turn will come soon. <laughs> Jesus warned us and warned his disciples that in the world you will have tribulation. In the world, you're going to have trouble. You don't need to look for trouble as a Christian. Trouble will come to find you. And you're going to have trouble in this world if you live as a Christian. In John 15 and verse 19, it says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. We don't belong here. We're, We're foreigners. We're aliens no matter where we live. We're foreigners. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait. A savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as, a, as an old song says, This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Just up in glory's land, we'll live eternally. The saints on every hand are shouting victory. Their song of sweetest praise drifts back from heaven's shore, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. We're not home yet. And we're going to have trouble while we're in this world. And the, the question that we started to answer the last time we were together is how are we supposed to prepare ourselves to stand in the evil day because the evil day will come, right? Right? We're going to have to stand. We're going to have to take a stand. And how are we going to be able to take the stand? We already know that suffering will come, but how can believers endure suffering for the sake of righteousness? That's the question we started to answer the last time we were together. And Peter exhorted us to look to the author and the perfecter of our faith. Look to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect example, the pattern to, to follow our lives after, to kind of trace our lives after Jesus Christ. Look what it says in uh, chapter 4 and verse 1 of 1 Peter. It says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. You need to be prepared to suffer. And that was our first point. Be prepared to suffer. If you're going to be able to suffer for the sake of righteousness' sake, you need to be armed and prepare yourself for the battle. To arm yourself, it's a, it's a military word. It was used for an armed foot soldier. Uh, if you have, a, uh, if you have a, a Bible, if you're a Christian, you're, you have a permission to carry, right? Permission to carry. And the weapons of our warfare, the scripture says, are not carnal. We don't pick up physical implements of war and battle because the battle is not against flesh and blood, right? This the battle that we fight is a war of our minds, of our thinking, the way that we think. When Peter says, arm yourselves... With the same purpose. He's talking about the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Some of your translations may say, arm yourselves with the same purpose, uh, arm yourselves with the, uh, the same mind, the same attitude, the same way of thinking. And that's the idea behind this word. It comes from the, uh, the same word uh, that we get the, the word mind from, uh, the Greek word for mind, annoy. It's how we think, what motivates our actions. And if we're going to be prepared to stand in the evil day, our minds have to be armed with the same kind of thinking that Jesus had. And what kind of thinking was that? I believe it was more than just that he died. It was the question of what motivated him to go to the point of death. You know, what motivated him to to die. And what motivated Jesus was the will of the Father. He entrusted himself and resigned himself to the will of the Father, no matter what. Not as I will, but as you will. Not my will, but your will be done. And there would be not a Calvary if there was not a Gethsemane. You know, there first had to be the, the wrestling in the, the garden, you know, where, where Christ resigned himself to the will of the Father, not as I will, but as you will, and that's what prepared him for Calvary. He had to win the battle on his knees before he ever won it on the cross. Jesus was committed to the will of the Father beyond death, beyond torture, even beyond the full fury of God's righteous wrath that was poured out upon him, and that's the kind of attitude that, that we need to have. I'm committed to the will of the Father. It's more than just knowing we're going to die. It's what prepares us for death. It's the will of God to live the rest of our lives, not for the will of men, but for the the will of God. And that was our first answer to the question, how can believers endure suffering for the sake of righteousness? Our second answer to that question was found in verse 3. And we could summarize uh, this point by saying that uh, we're prepared to separate. We're prepared to suffer, and we're also prepared to separate. Look at verse 3. It says, for the time already past, is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking, parties, and abominable idolatries. And the idea is that this may have characterized your life in the past, but not in the present. You know, I no longer live like this. I separate myself from that kind of life. That's the living that used to dominate me. I've separated myself from those things. And there's uh, three main categories of sins that are mentioned here. Uh, sins of immorality, the sins of drunkenness, the sins of idolatry. And uh, there's a historical connection uh, between these three because uh, this is what characterized the false religions and the cults. Uh, the false gods were, were fine with these kinds of practices. Many, many of the false religions actually encouraged these practices. That, that was the way that you worshipped your god, is to get drunk. You know, to, 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 to be sexually immoral, that was one of the ways that you would worship your gods. You know, basically the, the Greek and Roman gods were, you know, uh, supersized versions of men, and whatever men liked, the gods liked. You know, even more so. You know, so you just had to do it up for the gods. And that was the course of the Gentiles. And that was the, the course that some of you might have pursued before you came to, to Jesus Christ, and it's a dead-end pursuit, right? It's a dead-end. Dead religion or no religion is where it leads to. You know, whenever I hear a person has rejected the faith, you know, it usually doesn't take long to trace it back to a pursuit of one of these kinds of sins. And, you know, you have to make an excuse to continue to live the way that you want to live. So what do you have to do? You have to get rid of God. You know, I can't have the God of the Bible looking over my shoulder when I want to sin. You know, I've got to have a God that's comfortable with my sin. You know, so you you have to kind of pull God down and redefine who he is so you can feel comfortable living the kind of life that you've chosen for yourself. You know, love is love. Love is love, right? Because we've, we've got to kind of convince ourselves that God is okay with my lifestyle. But the believer resists that kind of pursuit by reminding himself that I've, I've been down there long enough. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't need to pursue that same course that I used to pursue. I've, I've been down that road too long, too far. I've wasted too much of my life already in those kinds of pursuits. Again, in verse 3, the times already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. And the idea is, you know, I've, I've spent enough time back there. Romans 6.21 says, What benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. There's no benefit. I'm ashamed of it. It brought me slavery. It produced death. Why would I want to go back there? I've had enough. I've had enough. And even the memory of my past sins is enough to guard me against drifting back downstream again. I'm, I'm prepared to separate. And that's where we left off last time, but, but there's, there's some more help that this text gives us, and we don't want to miss any of it. So let's jump in at 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, starting at verse 4. It says, In all this they are surprised, that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again, as we always do, trusting in you to help us to understand what we read. Now, Father, without you, we can't understand these things. My Father, you have to open our eyes, and uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, use me as a a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've titled this message, Surprise, Surprise, uh, because of the shock that's expressed in, in verse 4 by the unbeliever. It says, in all this they are surprised that you do not run with them. That, that word surprise comes from uh, the Greek word uh, uh, zanidzo, which is actually a word that means to receive a stranger. You know, have you ever uh, heard of the, the term Xenophobia. It actually comes from uh, the root of the same Greek word, you know, uh, xenophobia, you know, to, uh, to be fearful of strangers, of foreigners, you know, and here it's xenizo. Uh, it has this root word of foreigner or stranger within it, and that's what Christians are to the world around us. We're strange. We're like foreigners. You know, people look at us and they say, that's, that's strange. It doesn't make sense. I, I, I don't have a category to put that in. You know, that's from out of this world. It doesn't belong here, and they're right. Back in chapter 1, in verse 1, it says those who reside as aliens. That's us. Christians are are aliens, sojourners in a strange place. Chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts. We we dwell in a foreign land. And in uh, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 17, it says that we're to conduct ourselves in fear during the time of our stay on earth. We're just just passing through. We're sojourners. We don't, we don't belong here. We're not going to stay here. We're just passing through. And we appear as foreigners, even in our own country. Strangers in our own homes for some of us. And it's a shock to their system. Because we don't respond in the same ways that we used to. It's, it's like we're not the same person anymore. Because in reality, you're not. <laughs> you're not the same person. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. You know it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation or a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You're a new person if you're in Christ. It's the reality that Peter referred to back in First Peter chapter 1 verse 23, where he says that you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. We have a new life. We've been born of a new seed. We have a new life in place of the old one. It's what Theologians refer to as regeneration, regeneration, which has been defined as the creative work of God, which produces a new life in virtue of which man, made alive with Christ, shares the resurrection life and can be called a new creature. We share the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. One one Puritan author calls it the life of God in the soul of man, the life of God in the soul of man. We've been born again, and we're not the same person anymore. And for some of you, you remember the the moment when you came to Jesus Christ. You you immediately noticed that change when you gave your life to to Jesus Christ. It's like, you know, the world immediately changed around you. Things were just different. You know, there's the the, the words of that hymn, I am his and he is mine, where it says heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green, something lives in every hue. Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs overflow. Flowers with deeper beauty shine. Since I know, as now I know, I am his and he is mine. The world just seems different. You know, the the birds sing differently. The sky looks different. I mean, just everything's changed. And some of you remember that moment when, like, the lights came on. And all all of a sudden it's just like, I have a new perspective on everything. I, I still remember... Uh, when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, and it was like the, like I said, the, the lights were turned on. And there, there was this joy that I didn't know before. And the scriptures all of a sudden made sense. And life made sense. I mean, it was just like this immediate change that happened when I came to Jesus Christ. But for some of you, that, 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 that perception was kind of more gradual, awareness over time, that's like, you know, some, something's different here. You know, I, I don't find pleasure in the things I used to find pleasure in anymore. You know, you started having a, a spiritual appetite, a hunger for spiritual things, and you realized spiritual inclinations that you didn't, didn't have anymore before. I, I remember one of my, uh, my friends who described his experience of coming to faith in Christ. He said he was in, in college, and uh, this, this might be encouraging to you. He said there was a believer uh, that came and knocked on his door, his dorm room, and, uh, you know, talked to him for a little while and kind of did some small talk, and then he left. And, uh, this believer was intending to come and share the gospel, but he chickened out, you know, before he actually got a chance to share it. And he felt so bad. He was convicted. He came back and knocked on his door again. And he says, Hey, you know, I I stopped by earlier, but I I didn't say what I was supposed to say. And he says, uh, what I actually wanted to say to you is that, uh, you say that you're a believer, but I don't see any fruit of salvation in your life. I, I don't think that you know the Lord. And then he shared the gospel with this guy. And, uh, He's like, okay, you know, thank you, and he, you know, closed the door. And he thought about, you know, what this guy had to say, but he was kind of like trying to brush it off. But like, he felt convicted by what he heard. And he was supposed to go to a frat party right after he left this conversation, you know. So he goes to the frat party, and everybody's chanting his name as he enters into the room. And they slide a beer down the table to him, and he catches it one hand, just like he always did. But then all of a sudden, he's like, I don't belong here anymore. No, nothing else had changed on the outside, but there was something that happened on the inside where he's just like this. This just doesn't feel right anymore. I don't. I don't fit here anymore. And he kind of tried to get back into what he used to do, but there was something different on the inside, and it wouldn't let him go. He said it stuck. <laughs> and later on, he uh, went to seminary, and he's now pastoring a, a church. But uh, but that's the work of regeneration. That's the work of regeneration. Like, I, I just can't, I can't throw myself into the sins that I used to throw myself into. Something's, something's different. Something's different. And it's like I, I just can't, I can't hold my breath that long anymore, right? It just, it just doesn't work for me anymore. There's two aspects of regeneration that are pointed out by uh, a guy named Louis Berkhoff in his systematic theology that I found helpful. Listen to this. He says, two elements must be distinguished in regeneration. Namely, generation or the beginning of new life and the bearing or bringing forth by which the new life is brought forth out of its hidden depths. In other words, he says, generation implants the principle of new life in the soul and the new birth causes this principle to begin to assert itself into action. So so in other words, if new life has been planted within, it will begin to work its way out. If, if you've been regenerated on the inside, it's going to, to pop up because you now have a new life. That things can't be the same anymore. You know, it's like that song, Jesus on the inside working on the outside. Oh, what a change in my life. Like something different has happened. I can't be the same anymore. Something's working on the inside. Which is why if you pay attention to 1 Peter chapter 4 again, if you take a look back at your text, 1 Peter 4 and verse 4, It says, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. Pay attention to what he says. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them. You're not doing it anymore. Why? Because there's been a change on the inside that does not allow me to do it anymore. You understand what I'm saying? Something, if you've been regenerated... You can no longer live the life that you used to live. You do not run with them anymore. If you've been born again, the imperishable seed that you have, the life of God in you, cannot throw yourself into the same sins that you used to throw yourself into. You can't, you can't run with them. You, you may try to dabble in it. You may try to get along with it. But it's like, I can't just throw myself into into it the way that I used to, because something's different, like, like the Lord won't allow me to. It's not the air that I breathe anymore. You can't run like that anymore into the same excesses of dissipation. That phrase, excesses of dissipation, could be translated as a flood of debauchery or flood of wickedness in some translations. Now, the word excesses literally means a pouring out or overflow, it's the over-the-top debauchery. One commentator says it's, it's plunging into wickedness. Just just throwing yourself into it. The flood of dissipation. Uh, dissipation, it's a, a word uh, that means wastefulness. Similar word that's used in Luke chapter 15 to describe the prodigal son who went on a journey into a distant country. He squandered his estate with loose living. That's the same word, dissipation. Wasteful living, He threw himself into that until he came to his senses. It's like, what am I doing here? (laughs) I need to go home. Like something changed, like the the lights came on. Like, Like it's the same thing that happens with us. I can't throw myself into this the way that I used to. Loose living, it's the same word for dissipation in Luke 15. Proverbs 28, 7 uses that same word for the companion of gluttons. Ephesians 5.8 uses it for drunkenness. Titus 1.6 uses it for sexual immorality. And Luke 15 uses it for the prodigal son who devoured his wealth with prostitutes. It could literally be translated unsavedness. It actually comes from the, the root word for salvation. It's unsavedness. Nothing to be saved about this kind of life. Nothing to hang on to. It's all useless. Gluttony, drunkenness, sexual immorality, all unsavedness. But when... You yourself are unsaved. Unsavedness looks like life to you. <laughs> and you're surprised when others don't join you in it. Like, like what planet are you from? You know, just, just get along with it. You know, just refusing to participate is enough for people to start speaking evil of you. You know, you just, just get along. I mean, what's, what's the big deal here? And that's just enough. Just you're not participating in what you used to participate in is enough for the world to start to rebuke you. Because your life alone is a rebuke to them. You know, like, you, you, you think you're better than us now? How many times have you heard that? You think you're better, holier than now? You know, Mr. High and Mighty? You know, you don't want to, you, I mean, you did it last week. I mean, what's the problem this week? Now you're too good for us. You don't want, that's what's going on. Like, like, you've been regenerated. Now you're different. And now they're looking at you like, what's, what's wrong with you? And it's just, just by you not participating with us anymore makes me feel ashamed. And I don't want that. Like, like turn the lights down. Like, you know, I, I like it in the dark. You Coming in here with that, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Take that somewhere else. We don't want your little light over here. But we need to be prepared to stand. Prepare to stand. Again, in verses 4 and 5, take a look. In all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them. To the same excesses of dissipation, they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge. If you're prepared to stand, your life alone becomes the rebuke because you are the light of the world. You'll either, people will either be attracted to the light or they will be repelled from the light, right? Because the deeds are evil. So they attack the light. That's why we have trouble in the world. Because <laughs> they don't like the light. And they speak evil of the light. They malign the light. Actually, the the, the word for malign is the the Greek word blasphemeo. It's to, to blaspheme. And that describes the Gentiles or the unbelievers in this context who are blasphemers. And the implication is that they don't just speak about you, but the implication is that they're also speaking about the God that told you to live the way that you do. You understand? Because I didn't come up with my own standard. You know, I'm trying to live the way that the Lord has commanded me to, but now you're speaking evil against me. You're really speaking evil about about the Lord. Exodus 16, when the children of Israel began to grumble against Moses, Exodus 16, verse 8, Moses said, The Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against who? Against him. (laughs) You know, you're, you're grumbling, complaining to me, but who's your grumble really against? Your grumble's really against the Lord. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Numbers fourteen twenty seven, God said, I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. It's not about you, Moses. They're, they're doing this against me. First Samuel, when the people of Israel rejected Samuel's counsel to them, first Samuel 8, verse seven, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. It's ultimately the the Lord that they're speaking evil against. It's ultimately against him. So they blaspheme, and they're speaking evil against God. And ultimately, it's the Lord who they'll have to give an answer to. They've been speaking against him all this time. Now you have to answer to me for what you've been saying. Verse 5, but they will give an account. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Those who have so many words to share down here on earth will literally have to answer him a word. To give an account literally is to answer a word. They, they have an explanation to give. You know, back in First Peter 3.15, it's the unbelievers who were asking you to give an account for the hope that you have. And now the tables are turned. Now the Lord is asking them to give an account for the words that they've said. You, you give your account. You know, you've asked them for an account long enough. Now it's your turn to give the account. Give an account for the way that you've spoken against me and against my servants. They'll have to answer for every word. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. You will have to answer for every word. And can you imagine what judgment day will look like for those who continually blaspheme the Lord and his people? To have to give an answer some kind of justification for what they've done. And the Bible lets us know that they're without what? Without excuse. No excuse. And Peter says that the, the Lord is the judge. And he's ready. <laughs> it's not just that he's the judge, he's, he's ready to judge. He, he, he doesn't have to gather evidence, he doesn't need a jury. You don't need to, to try to get a defense attorney. The verdict's already been reached. And he's ready to judge. He's ready to judge. And death will not be an escape because he's ready to judge the living and the dead. He's the universal judge of all humanity. And if if you're here today and you think that, that death is going to be some kind of escape for you, and that you can somehow escape whatever you might have received in this life through death, the reality is far worse than that. Because you're not going to escape your judgment by death, but you will fall into judgment by death. The, the Lord is ready to judge the living and the dead. You know, sometimes people die and they say, oh, you know, you know, they cheated justice. You know, they escaped justice or, you know, justice was robbed, you know, because this person died before going to trial. But justice is never robbed. <laughs> justice is never cheated. You don't escape justice and death. You fall into it. You're wanted dead or alive, okay? You're wanted dead or alive. And you will have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And the only escape from this judge is to acknowledge your guilt and to turn yourself in. <laughs> that's, that's the way you escape. You acknowledge your guilt, you turn yourself in, and you give your life over to him. You trust in him to be your substitute. First Peter chapter 2, if you want to look back to that, 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 24, 1 Peter 2, 24. Where's our answer? How how do we escape this kind of judgment? Verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. And that's not talking about a physical healing, that's talking about a spiritual healing. How how do you escape this, this judge? You escape this judge by him bearing your sins for you. <laughs> that's how you escape him. You, you escape him by coming to him. That's how you escape the judgment. You come, come to the judge. And here's, here's the marvelous reality that's contained here. The judge is willing to be your substitute and take the penalty that you rightly deserve. The judge is willing to place that on himself. That's what Jesus Christ did. Acts chapter 10 and verse 42 says that it's Jesus who is the judge. The one who judges the living and the dead? Who's who's that? Acts chapter 10, verse 42. Peter said, He ordered us to preach to the people, Jesus, and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead, and he himself will take upon himself the penalty for your sins. Bear your sins. So instead of running away from the light, you can run to the light. Run to the light. Be saved by the light. Because apart from that, you'll have an accounting to give in the day of judgment. But how does that prepare believers to suffer for the sake of of righteousness? Because that's, that's where we started, right? That's the context of all this. How does this prepare believers to suffer for the sake of righteousness? How does it help us? It helps because we know that the ridicule and the mocking and even the persecution that we might endure in this life is nothing compared to the reckoning that unbelievers will have to face for giving it to us nothing what, what we face is is small potatoes compared to having to face the judge of the living and the dead right and rather than responding with anger and retaliation and resentment we can actually respond with mercy and pity we can entrust ourselves to the lord Romans 12 verse 19 never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Don't, don't, you don't have to worry about trying to pay them back. You know, they insult you, they malign you, they blaspheme, they speak about you. Don't, don't worry about having to get them back. Vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. I'll, I'll repay. They're, they're not going to get away. Just leave it, leave it up to the, to the Lord. And we can respond in, in mercy even towards those who persecute us. Matthew five forty four, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Luke six twenty seven, but I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And that was the Lord's attitude on the cross, wasn't it? Yeah. Luke 23, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And, and, and who, is he, who is the they? It was the, the they who were casting lots and dividing up his garments among themselves. They they have no idea what they're doing down here, Lord Lord forgive them, and knowing that judgment is coming can prepare us to stand in the evil day. I, I don't have to worry about trying to get them back. You know, the the Lord takes care of that, and I need to pray for them because they have no idea what they're doing and no idea what they'll have to face on the day of reckoning. And finally, we need to be prepared to speak. Prepared to speak. Look at verse six. It says, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. And this is the the final motivation that Peter gives us in this section for suffering for the sake of righteousness. But sadly, it's been confused uh, by those who try to find some evidence here for a second chance after death, or some kind of post-mortem evangelism, as if the, the gospel is being preached to, to dead people. There are some people who try to connect this back to chapter 3 and verse 19, where it says uh, that Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. But, th- but that's a completely different context. The, the spirits in chapter 3 and verse 19 were connected to the angels and authorities and powers that were made subject to Christ in verse 22. That's th- not the case in chapter 4. Chapter 4, these are men who are judged in the flesh. Also, the spirits, in chapter 3 and verse 19, were said to be judged in prison. But uh, in chapter 4, it says that they're dead. These men are dead. Chapter 3 and verse 19, it's the, the preaching is, is a general proclamation, which, which has to have a content. You know, it's just general proclamation, but the content has to be understood from the context. But in chapter 4, where it speaks about preaching, it uses the specific word for proclaiming the gospel. The gospel the euangelizo word, you know, good news. It's the gospel message that's being preached in chapter 4. And in addition to that, the context makes it clear that the gospel message would have to be received during this life because the judge is ready. (laughs) The judge is already ready. And how can you speak about a judge being ready to judge if the the verdict is still out and we're not sure what the the end results are going to be? The judge is ready. The Bible doesn't entertain the idea of People coming to faith after death. Hebrews chapter nine, verse twenty-seven. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Luke chapter sixteen and verse twenty-six describes the afterlife by saying, "There's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. You, you, You can't cross this divide." Once you're there and once I'm here, like there's no crossing over. It's fixed. Your position will be fixed after death. And that position will be fixed forever. For the believer, there should be no more joyful thought than to know that my position will be fixed. For, for a believer, like, like I'm in the kingdom and I'm fixed in the kingdom. I can't cross over there anymore. Like it's done. There's there's no more joyful thought for the believer than my position is fixed. And there is no more terrifying thought for the unbeliever than to know that my position after death will be fixed. That's a terrifying thought. Terrifying thought. Fixed forever under wrath and condemnation. And there's no gospel preaching beyond the grave. So what's going on in chapter 4 and verse 6? What are we talking about? It says the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are who are dead. What's what's going on here? What verse 6 is saying is that for this reason, pointing back to the truth we just read about in verse 5, that you know men will have to give an account to him in the last day. For this reason, the message has been preached. To the dead. And who are the dead? The, The dead are those who've heard the gospel in life, and now they're dead. They, they were alive, they, they heard the message, and having received the gospel in this life, they've now passed away. But when they've crossed over, their position is fixed. So what we're talking about is those who've received the gospel in life, and who have since died, and now their position is fixed in heaven. And how do we know Peter's talking about believers whose position is now fixed? Because he says here... That they're judged in the flesh as men, but they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Who are those who are living in the Spirit? We're talking about believers. In other words, these are men who are dead in the flesh, but alive in the Spirit. They've received spiritual life, that regeneration, that, that new life, the imperishable seed that can't die. They've received that new life. And how did they receive that new life? It was through the gospel message. That's how they received new life. And that's exactly what Peter talks about earlier on in chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 24. Chapter 1, verse 24, first Peter. Here Peter speaks about how we'll all die, right? Verse 24, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, all men die. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. It's that word, that that eternal word, that enduring word is the word that was preached to you. And that's the word that you've been saved by. And now that I've received the spiritual seed, this enduring word of God, now I live forever. We've been saved by an eternal word. And that's what Peter is making the point of. Back in uh, verse 23, go back up uh, another couple verses. Verse 23 in chapter 1. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, not by seed that's going to die, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. That's how you've been born again, through a seed that will not die. You're going to live forever. Even after your flesh dies, you will continue to live. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 speaks about the same thing. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, it's the the resurrected life of Christ that is now in us. The life of God in the soul of man. So so think about what Peter is saying uh, back in chapter 4 and verse 6. We know that God is ready to judge the living and the dead. And because of that, the gospel has been preached. Even to those who were alive and are now deceased. And in the flesh, it looks like they've been judged As men, they could could look at their their deaths and say, like, that guy's perished. But what's going on in the Spirit? In the Spirit, he has life. As men look at it, it looks like that death has had the final word on that person. But as God looks at it, they're alive in the Spirit. On Reformation Day, uh, we studied the the life of, of John Wycliffe who was uh, considered to be the the morning star of the Reformation. He taught that uh, the scriptures are to be considered the authority over the the popes and translated the Bible into English, for English-speaking people and trained ministers to preach the word of God. He also taught that the bread and wine of communion were not literally changed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. You know, that the, 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 the elements that we pick up aren't the physical body and, and blood of, of Jesus Christ. Do you know how he died? Wycliffe became paralyzed just as he was about to serve the Lord's Supper. <laughs> On the last Sunday of December 1384, and two days later, he died. December 31st. Died in his bed. And by human standards... He was considered to be judged by God. His enemies actually cited the way that he died as evidence that what he taught was not right. He he can't be right because look at how he died. Just as he was about to serve that heretical supper, the Lord took him out, paralyzed him, died two days later. Over 30 years later, in 1415, there was a council that examined Wycliffe's writings. Then on December 9th, 1427, a number of years later, it was ordered that Wycliffe's body and bones would be dug up out of the grave, publicly burnt, his ashes disposed, so that no trace of him could be seen again, which was again considered a judgment on his life. You think Wycliffe is such a holy guy? Look at, look at how he died. And look at what we've done with his bones. He's not, he doesn't even have a burial plot anymore. We scooped him up. You know, sorry for the guys that had to do the dirty work, right? But they scooped him up out of the grave burn him to ashes, and threw his ashes into a river. Let's just look at how he died. Look at the desecration of his body. He's been judged. He has been judged. But I love how John Fox summarizes it. He says, although they burned his bones and drowned his ashes, the word of God and the truth of John Wycliffe's doctrine will never be destroyed. Why? Because he was born again by an imperishable seed. You, you, you can't touch the spirit by burning my body. You, you can't touch my spirit by, by scattering my ashes into a river. My spirit is secure Amen. because I've been born again by an imperishable seed. Yes. A biblical example of this would be Stephen. Right, why don't you flip over to Acts chapter 6. Stephen, the, the first martyr of the church. In Acts chapter 6, he was accused of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God take a look at uh, Acts chapter 6 look at verse verse 11 Acts chapter 6 verse 11 it says then they secretly induced men to say we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God and they stirred up the people the elders and the scribes and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council in verse 13 It says, they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like that of an angel. Look at chapter 7. Flip over to chapter 7. Look at verse 57. This is after the, the long sermon that Stephen gave after they, they heard a sermon, actually I'll start at verse 56, it says, Behold, this is what Stephen is saying, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So, so here, here's the Son of Man standing up in approval, right? You know, we, we see Jesus Christ in other places being seated next to the right hand of, of God. You know, again, because the work is finished like we find in the book of Hebrews. Here, Jesus is in a different position. He's actually standing up. Like like as if to honor Stephen coming in. He's being approved by God, but what's happening down on earth? Verse 58, 57. They cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. And uh, this is uh, exactly what we read back over in First Peter, that we can have compassion on even those that cast insults, malign us, persecute us. What is, what, is he, what is he doing here? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Stephen would have been considered judged. He has been judged. We judged him. We put the judgment upon him. The, the men have taken care of him, but in the spirit, Stephen was never more alive. <laughs> seeing, seeing heaven from earth, seeing Jesus stand up to welcome him home, in the spirit, Stephen was alive. And the, the greatest example would be Jesus Christ. Why don't you flip over to Matthew chapter 27. Jesus would have been considered judged in the flesh according to, to men. It would have been believed that there's no way that you could go to the cross if you were really the Son of God. You know, that's what they kept saying, right? If, if you're the Son of God, come down! Come down from there! And just like Isaiah 53 says, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. Take a look at Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 39. Matthew 27, starting at verse 39. It says, And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest also along with the scribes and elders were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Like the nerve, right? For a period of time, Jesus was assumed to be stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And you know what? For a time he was. For a time he was. But that was not the final word on Christ. (laughs) Not the final word on Christ. He's alive in the spirit according to the will of God. was bodily raised from the dead right now at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels authorities powers had been subjected to him so what's the encouragement here for us what's the encouragement here first of all you may endure suffering now for the sake of, of righteousness but don't think that that's all that is to be said about your life that's not it people could falsely accuse you now Say that you're, you're narrow-minded, you Bible-thumping you're bigot. You may never be able to prove your innocence. You may lose your job because you choose to hold on to this ancient word. You know, this this word that doesn't change. You hold on to that. You, you might lose your job for that because it doesn't change with the times. There's, there's no, no downloaded information. It's not getting updated for our culture and our times. You know, you still believe in that book. You, you may lose your job for that. You might even get sick and Die because you chose to fellowship with those backwards, unscientific Neanderthals at church. But even though you may be judged in the flesh as men, in the spirit you live according to the will of God. And our vindication may not come in this life, but it doesn't have to. Because that's not where I'm looking for it from. I'm not looking for it from, from men to approve of me. I'm not seeking the, the applause and the, the praise of men. I seek, seek the honor that comes from God. Like, like, that's what I live for. I live for His will. That's what it's all about, right? Your will be done, not my will. It's not about what people think. Our vindication may not come in this life, but that's not what we're looking for. And second, we need to be busy preaching the good news of this gospel, right? Because this is the only way that any of us will escape the judgment to come and experience life according to the will of God. We need to be prepared to speak this word. Because this is the word. This is the only word that brings eternal life and that can transform the life. Amen? This is the only word. And we're prepared to suffer, prepared to separate, prepared to stand, and finally, we're prepared to speak this truth. And it's okay if we suffer for the sake of of righteousness. uh, Because we... Rather suffer for the sake of righteousness than be celebrated for the sake of evil, right? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for this text. Uh, We thank you for uh, the ways that uh, you use this word in in our lives, Lord, to encourage us, uh, Father, to remind us of uh, your goodness, your greatness, uh, to to remind us of the glories of heaven, uh, that we don't live for the approval of of men, for the sake of men, uh, but we live uh, to please you. It's not as we will, but as you will, and that we lay our lives down, and that it's okay to suffer persecution and ridicule for the sake of of righteousness, because we know whose side we're on, and we know who we've believed, and we know where our true life is found. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen.
0: You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.